I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Glyn Maddox, who is a solicitor from Crickowl, who for many years has been a specialist in miscarriage of justice cases. Glyn, where are you from originally? Uh, I'm what I call a border person. I was born in Hereford, grew up in Shropshire, spent some time in Newport, and now live in Crickowl, so, which is very near the border. So that, that edge between Wales and England is my home territory. How did you get involved in the law? I started my career, I was initially, when I left university, I didn't know what to do. Actually, the law was about the last thing I wanted to do, but I did uh, two years working for a member of parliament as a research assistant, political assistant, and I th- found that I was very interested in it. That, that was the um, the making the law, and then I thought, well, the next thing would be quite interesting is to implement it and see how it works. So I then be- retrained as a solicitor. And... How long did it take before you got involved in miscarriage of justice? Miscarriage of justice, where it came about, I suspect, because of serendipity. An interesting character came to see me in the early 90s, a a gentleman called Tony Stock, who was based in Landrindod, and he had one of the most interesting cases I think I've ever dealt with. And in fact, I'm still working on his case, despite the fact that he's been um, dead now since 2012. His case was the first case that was referred by the CCRC, which is the organisation set up... Criminal Cases Review Commission. Criminal Cases Review Commission. It was set up back in 1997. His case is the first case that that the CCRC has referred back to the Court of Appeal twice. I think there's one case since then, but it's a very remarkable case. Tell us about the case. Uh, It's a fascinating case. Tony Stock was charged and convicted back in 1970 for a robbery in a supermarket in Leeds, in the Merrion Centre. Uh, There was a gang of guys who were supposed to, well in fact they did, attack the manager and his assistant who were taking money from the supermarket to a Midland Bank safe deposit box, um, 100 yards or so. During the time that they were walking from one place to the other, this gang of about five guys came and attacked them. We've never seen the money since, and the five guys have disappeared, but Tony Stock, the next day, or a couple of days later, was arrested and charged of that crime. He always protested his innocence. He was convicted. As I say, no one else was ever involved or found for the crime, even though it was obviously a gang. Everyone said it was a gang. And he did uh, six years of a 10-year sentence. During that time, he uh, uh, he was in prison. He was one of the first rooftop protesters. He also uh, went on hunger strike to the extent that they had to put a piece of wood in his mouth and feed him by a pipe. Anyway, he was then released in 1976, thought he would try and get on with his life. Sadly, that in a way didn't happen. Two years after he was released, uh, a supergrass came forward who was involved in a big, something called the Thursday Gang. Uh, The Thursday Gang had been doing lots of robberies throughout the country and the supergas gave evidence, a chap called Benefield, against the, uh, his colleagues, the other robbers, the other criminals. And during the course of that interview, he said, there's just one other thing I want to say. I'm aware of the fact that there was a robbery that took place in 1970 in Leeds and we did it. 
and I know that some innocent guy had done time for the fa for this crime that he didn't do it. He was nothing to do with us. I've never heard of him again, and I feel very sad and sorry that he's been in prison for something he didn't do. As a result of that, Tony Stock thought, "Oh my gosh, I'm going to get my get a pardon now. I'm going to get my conviction quashed." Process went on. Um, it was referred to the Home Office in those days. An investigation took place. Took about three or four years. Willie Whitelaw was involved as the Home Secretary. That shows how long ago it That's was. That's it, it does. And the end result was, uh, no, they're not going to refer your case to the Court of Appeal. Sorry, but we don't think that 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 you 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 didn't do it. Unbelievable. Someone says, I did it. He didn't. What more evidence do you want? Particularly when that guy has managed to put other people in prison and they believed him for 20-plus-year sentences. Anyway, he then again started to try and get on with his life, not very successfully, went to a South Africa with a, a, a new wife because his marriage had broken down when he was in prison, had some more children, but couldn't ever get rid of it, couldn't, couldn't put it to bed to the extent that he, he became obsessed. Well, he was obsessed with it. Times changed. He then settled in Landrindod, as I said, remarried, and he started thinking about what he could do about this. He got his local MP involved, Jonathan Evans and Richard Livesley, and they helped him. He made a fresh application to the to the Home Office, and for reasons which are still inexplicable, the Home Office at this time decided they were going to refer his case back to the Court of Appeal. Hmm. That was before the CCRC was established. And that suddenly came onto my desk and Tony Stock came to see me and said, will you help me? And it was completely, wow, this is fascinating. This is very interesting. He needs some help. And I worked with him on that case. We went to the Court of Appeal in 1996 with Michael Mansfield, QC, as our barrister, and Vera Baird, QC, Dame Vera Baird, mm. both of whom are very high profile. And we thought that we were going to win. In fact, the prosecuting solicitor said to me before the court case started, this is in the bag for you, isn't it? You know, we've all turned up today, but basically it's a, you know, it's an open goal. Needless to say, that didn't happen. And the Court of Appeal, with Lord Justice Judge presiding, decided to turn logic upside down um, and threw the case out. So that was it. 1996, we lost and we couldn't really think about anywhere else that we were going to go. Having said that, fortuitously, the CCRC was set up a year later. We made an application, not thinking very hopefully that it would be uh, looked at favourably by the CCRC, and they did. They referred it back to the Court of Appeal again. They looked at all the evidence. They thought that this was a clear miscarriage of justice for all the reasons that I could go into in enormous detail, but essentially one person saying that he did it and the other person saying he didn't. And it was referred once again to the Court of Appeal, 2003. Same result. Turned down. So that was really when we thought, my gosh, that is probably time to call it a day. But Tony Stock was in a massively determined character. He, out of his meagre pension, was paying private detectives up in Leeds to try and find fresh evidence. He never gave up. He had his wall of his flat in Landrindon covered in, it was like a sort of police inquiry room where he had diagrams and he was absolutely obsessed with it. It was the last thing he wanted to do before he died was to clear his name. Sadly, he didn't do so. Anyway, we managed to get 
after enormous amount of pressure, the CCRC once again to look at it, and they then, as I said, turned, sent it back to the Court of Appeal once more. So we're now in the Court of Appeal for the fourth time. And once again, it was turned down. Hmm. It's extraordinary. This is a case that I think if you get put a one page of A4 information and you ask 100 people whether or not Tony Stock was guilty or not, uh, 99 out of the 100 would say, could, of course he couldn't be. And yet, a number of Court of Appeal judges have said, yes, he is guilty. He's still guilty, and that conviction stands. Is that emblematic of a systemic failure? It's one of the most emblematic cases that, that shows that the, our system is not functioning properly. Yes, and it should be. And the whole purpose of the CCRC, in a way, is to deal with those cases. That's what Parliament set it up to do. Parliament, 20 years ago, a bit longer than that, decided that the system wasn't working properly. They, as members of Parliament, were fed up with getting constituency letters from mothers and boyfriends and girlfriends saying, my my son has been charged and convicted of something he didn't do, what are you going to do about it? And in a way, there's a long history of parliamentarians getting involved and in campaigning. You know, Chris Mullen with the Birmingham Six and various other MPs, um, as well as journalists. Paul Foote in Private Eye was a lone voice for many years. And I think, you know, the, the, the parliamentarians thought, well, we've got to have a better system. This We haven't got the resources to, you know, we can campaign, we can raise, make speeches, we can put down parliamentary questions, we can harry and hassle, but there needs to be a properly funded body. The first in the world. Um, it was established in Birmingham, separate from the uh, executive. It was resourced, and it would have money and resources to to look at cases independently, thoroughly, and see if something went wrong. That was the theory. So why isn't it working? <sighs> Simple answer, the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal has, over a period of 20 years, effectively destroyed the CCRC. Every time the CCRC refers a case and the Court of Appeal turns it down, that's a nail in the coffin of the CCRC. What's the problem, then? There's, it's a power balance, a power imbalance. The CCRC hasn't got the same power that the Court of Appeal has. Now, the Court of Appeal has never said that it didn't want the CCRC to be established, but I think if you could uh, put a, a Court of Appeal judge in a corner and say to him, what do you think about the CCRC? He'd say, what's the point of it? We are doing a perfectly good job. We are the appeal court. Why do you need a CCRC? The system works brilliantly. Um, that's the problem. And over a period of 20 years, it has undermined the CCRC to the extent that you know, if you were doing a job and you uh, every story that you wrote was spiked, you would start to give up, wouldn't you? Hmm. You'd think, well, that's a brilliant story. I really want it to be printed or published. And, sorry, we're not going to publish that one. Not going to publish that one. We're not going to publish that one. What eventually would you do? You'd give up, hmm. which is the, a case review manager at the CCRC who feels that I might put a couple of years in this into this case and it, it's not going to be referred to the court of appeal. Why? You know, it must be disheartening. So the upshot of that is there's been a reduction in the number of cases referred? 12 last year. It went down to 0.77% in last year. It's gone up a little bit since then. It's I think it's 1.2%, something, something appalling. Bearing in mind there's a CCRC or equivalent in Scotland set up at the same time and its referral rate is round about 
Now, why is the difference? What is the difference? I, I mean, it's difficult to work it out. Unless they're doing a better job than our CCRC, or maybe the Scottish Court of Appeal isn't quite so hard on them. There's a, f a very interesting case, a Cardiff case, uh, Idris Ali. I don't know if you know it. That, that is a case that the CCRC spent quite a considerable period of time looking at, uh, and it's in the wake of the Lynette White investigation, which you know we could spend hours talking about. Um, CCRC did a lot of work, um, referred the case of Idris Ali back to the Court of Appeal. I think it's March 2016, the judgment. The judgment is horrendous as far as the CCRC is concerned. It is um, a hatchet job by Lady Justice Hallett on the CCRC. If you were the case review manager and you had prepared that case, or the committee of commissioners, and you'd sent that case in in good faith, thinking it was going to be referred because there was lots of lots of quashed in, because there's lots of information and that new stuff, new evidence, and that something had gone wrong. And then you read that judgment, you'd probably pack your bags and leave the commission that on that day. And in fact, I understand from sources within the CCRC that the commission went into a nose drive, downward spiral after that judgment. And it, uh, many of the cases that it thought it was going to refer after that, it had another look at. So the court appeal can be incredibly difficult. It can just say, well, why was this? Why, why did this case get sent to us? In Tony Stock's case, the last paragraph of the last judgment back in 2008, Mr. Justice Lathan says something like, well, I, you know, this case has little or no merit. And we're bewildered. Mr. Stock had managed to persuade the CCRC to send it back to us again. I mean, what a put down for, a, for one organisation of the, you know, the judges saying that to a, a, a properly funded independent body. What a put down. Is it the case that while obviously people like yourself, other practitioners and people affected by these wrong judgments are uh, very uh, concerned about the situation, the mass of people are not? Why is that? I think that's probably correct, sadly. Uh, everyone's interested in education, everyone's interested in the health service. Not, not that many people apparently interested in the integrity of our judicial system. I think they think that, uh, unfortunately, they or one member of their family come up against the, the criminal justice system in whatever form. It's going to work properly. So most of them have got in no experience of it whatsoever. Those people who are interested in and do face the criminal justice system, or a member of their family does, are bewildered, and they actually come over to my camp very quickly. Um, they they just cannot understand. You know, they think that if a member of their family has been charged with something they didn't do, and it's clear they didn't do it, then the system means that they will be found not guilty. When they're found guilty, it's bewildering. It's absolutely bewildering, because they're looking around thinking, well, what do we do now? How do we go about rectifying this? Certainly, you know, as their loved one is carted off to jail for something they didn't do. I've, I've been dealing with a case recently, um, a, a Mr. Daniel Creswell. Um, and in fact, there's a very good speech in the House of Commons by his MP called uh, Crispin Blunt MP, who sets the case out in some huge detail. And it's well this is a rape reading. case. It's a rape case. It's well worth reading. Uh, it's online. It, I recommend everyone goes to Crispin Blunt's speech who was a former justice minister who, who uses parliamentary privilege 
to lambast so many organisations who were involved in Daniel Creswell's um, conviction. The police, the CPS, then the organisations which are supposed to investigate when things go wrong, the, the police complaints authority, etc., etc. And he he leaves no stone unturned in, in what he says about the way in which those those organisations have behaved and which has led to Mr Creswell firstly being convicted of something he didn't do, then having to spend three or so years in prison and now having this on his name, on his character, perhaps for the rest of his life. And which is why that reason for that speech is to say, hang on, I know that he didn't do it and I want the world to know that he didn't do it. Because otherwise, if you go online and the police do a check, he's a convicted rapist. It's unbelievable, isn't it? That really is one of our problems. Having said that, um, there was a survey done recently, I think about three or four weeks ago, during Justice Week, when members of the public were asked the question what they ranked the most important, health, education, justice. A majority came back and said that it was equally ranked. So the public do want our justice system to be to be honest and fair. What they don't understand is that at the moment it isn't, because the media reasons which are you know, perhaps other things to think about have not have spelt it out but not in as clear terms as they should you know we've had the the disclosure issue in the last year or so but but the actual fact that the ccrc isn't working so if you are convicted of something you didn't do the ccrc isn't going to send your case back to the court of appeal and that is that information has not yet got through the remedy part of the justice system is not working and the Court of Appeal actually is, you know, believes in finality more than injustice. So how often would you say that people are wrongly convicted? It's extremely difficult to say because there are no figures out there. But estimates are that about, out of a prison population of 85,000, there's probably between 5 and 10% who are wrongly convicted. That's quite a large number, isn't it? But as I say, those the figures aren't available. In America, apparently, they've done some research because Rory Stewart in the House of Commons gave those figures fairly recently. It was about 25 to 5%. But it's all speculative speculation. So how do people get wrongly convicted in the first place? And then why is it so difficult to get the conviction cost? There's a whole host of reasons, really. Police corruption, police incompetence, poor disclosure, um, poor representation... Failure of the defence, sometimes to ask the right questions or to do the investigation. And don't forget, we've got a very uneven playing field. You have a whole, you have the state in the form of the police, who've got unlimited resources, unlimited people, and you've got the defence, which is generally you know, one man and his dog, with not very much money. Legal aid is cut back to the bone. There's no sort of no resources. Um, then there's experts who don't really know their job properly and give incorrect evidence which then can't be challenged or is difficult to challenge there's a whole host of reasons but they do happen and they happen fairly regularly because i think when for example the police and criminal evidence act was passed there was enormous hope that yes. some of the irregularities that had taken place before with people being verbaled as they put it you know where police officers would make up quotes and confessions from yeah. uh, individuals would, would be a thing of the past. But to what extent has that been of value? And you know, why, why does the problem persist? Pace is, is, was enormously valuable. And in fact, going back to the Tony Stock case, one of the 
problems with Tony Stock's case in 1970 was that he was verbal, using that phrase, which uh, is still part of the, um, the folklore of the criminal justice system. He was verbal, and he, post-pace he wouldn't have been able to be verbal. So there's no doubt that the improvements occurred. But you know, with every you know thing, every change, there's ways around it, and police officers can manage to um, to get their way to deviate from the correct line if they if they need to. Uh, one of my cases, a guy called Oliver Campbell, one of the clearest miscarriage of justice cases I've ever worked on. Police took him on a journey in a car. So that's, you know, outside the realm of pace. And during the course of that journey, he's supposed to have said things that weren't uh, necessarily pace compliant, but they used it in his um, trial. Um, so, you know, there are ways around things if you want. Your, your view is you're going to get that person, you're going to get him convicted, come what may. And sadly, that's the world that we live in, which isn't uh, good. And I guess the thing is, as well, that once you've been charged, the odds are stacked against you, aren't they? Absolutely. You know, you're sitting there, and you're a juror, and the guy comes in, or the lady comes into the box, and then they're sitting in the the place where they sit, and you're thinking, well, that must be, you know, you're, you're sort of, as the prosecution, you're halfway over the line already, aren't you? Because the police wouldn't have brought that person there, wouldn't have charged them, if they didn't think that they were guilty. It's not, again, not even playing field. So so you're sort of halfway to thinking, well, there must be something in this. That's the psychology of it. That's how it tends to work. And they haven't got to push that much harder then to get the conviction across the line. And they tend to do so. They're very, generally very successful. It's a bit of a class thing going on as well, it's isn't it? It's very much a class thing and very much a race thing as well. I mean, about going back to... Uh, Oliver Campbell's case uh, I was talking to a leading QC the other day we were talking about his case and and he said to me well Oliver had two mass- massive disadvantages one he was big and two he was black and he was therefore going to be found guilty the fact that he was um, had a brain injury when he was four and can't remember anything and is you know was really not really fit to plead in my opinion and couldn't possibly have done what he's supposed to have done, which is to go into a shop and pull out a, a gun from a holster that he made with a couple of pieces of string, seemed to have passed everyone by. You know, I, I've said all along with Oliver, if, if any member of the jury had sta- sat with him for literally five minutes, had a chat with him, they wouldn't have possibly been able to find him guilty. It's incapable of doing it. In fact, that's that was, came out of a of a very good Rough Justice, BBC Rough Justice programme on his case, which was aired 10 or so years ago. But another case, sadly, which the CCRC declined to refer. South Wales Police went through a tricky patch, didn't it, where there was a succession of miscarriages of justices. They would say that they cleaned up their act, and, for example, when they were reinvestigating the Lynette White case, and subsequently when they were seeking to prosecute the police officers who were said to have uh, committed crimes at the uh, in the in the first investigation they were they were saying we're going to sort everything out but of course that that case collapsed in a rather ignominious fashion do you think that south wales police still has something to answer for well i think south wales police in a sense can be proud that they're up there amongst the best and all the worst police forces in the country i mean we've had a 
huge number of, 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 of miscarriage of justice cases in South Wales. Uh, you know, we've had, as you say, Lynette White, we've had Jonathan Jones, we've had Annette Hewins, uh, um, we've had uh, recently the Clidock murder case. Um, Cardiff News Agent Cardiff 3. News Agent 3, the, the Mike O'Brien case as well. I mean, you know, we could be proud in Wales that we've done brilliantly in terms of miscarriage of justice, if that's what we have to be proud of. Uh, it would be nice to say that we haven't had one in in, in South Wales, but we can't say that. Um, I'm dealing. I've been dealing with a case that, which is a Newport Gwent case, which is Roden and Atwell. That's been a long-term miscarriage of justice. So, I would say the proof is in the pudding, and I'm not sure that the evidence that there yet is that that they've cleaned up their act sufficiently that there aren't going to be miscarriages of justice that are are coming to light or that come to light. Going back to my my primary point, however, though, is that at the moment those miscarriages of justice cases are going to the CCRC and the CCRC are turning them down. Recently, they turned down the David Morris, the Clitter case. Once again, there's a huge amount of evidence that that case uh, was a miscarriage of justice. Recently, a book been published by John Morris, um, a barrister, which sets the case out very well. Brian Thornton, an academic in Winchester, has done a huge amount of work. So, to some extent, the CCRC are doing a good job for the police around the country because they're not exposing miscarriages of justice. They're saying, we don't feel there's sufficient evidence to send the case back to the Court of Appeal. Only when these cases go back to the Court of Appeal that the media really start giving them the attention. When the CCRC was set up, I had a number of cases successfully quashed, referred by the CCRC, a guy called Paul Blackburn, a, a guy called Johnny Kamara, and a couple of other more minor cases. I do not believe that those cases would now be referred. I put my hand on my heart. I don't think that, that the CCRC would now feel strong enough and able enough to send those cases back to the Court of Appeal. That's quite shocking. It is shocking. It's terribly worrying, um, which is why the referral rate has gone down so dramatically. Anyone believes in justice and that, you know, the British justice system is the best in the world, which we are always brought up to believe in, you know, should be disturbed about this. Because it's, it's certainly, you know, there are better systems out there, I'm sure. But we have this idea that we can do things better, but we actually aren't putting the resources in and we're not being critical enough about it. I mean, there was a government minister on the radio the other day saying, oh, no, our British justice is the envy of the world. And you think, well... On what basis is he saying that? I think you're now involved in a group which is trying to take things forward. Yes, yes. I have, um, because of my past work in the House of Commons, I've been fortunate enough to make contact with a couple of MPs who are very interested in trying to bring the debate back to the House of Commons uh, and to to Parliament more generally. So we've set up about a year or so ago an all-party parliamentary group into miscarriages of justice. And we've had some very uh, interesting meetings and we've getting MPs in a sense. What we've got to do and what we're beginning to do is to educate members of parliament, particularly, dare I say, the younger ones, that this problem hasn't been solved, that they've got to come back in, roll their sleeves up and start sorting it out. Essentially, they're the only ones who can can deal with it. We need CCRC to be reformed. The Justice Select Committee a couple of years ago um, when Alan Beath was the chair, and in fact um, Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell were on the committee, made a recommendation that the real possibility test, which is what the CCRC used to dis- use to decide whether or not they're going to send a case back to the Court of Appeal, should be reformed. Nothing has happened since. 
So that's the sort of pressure that parliamentarians can bring back to the government um, when the government gets its act together and doesn't think about other things. And hopefully we can ensure that the CCRC is doing is going to do a much, much more effective job than it has recently. Recently, I read that one Conservative MP, obviously on the right of the party, was advocating a return to capital punishment. Do you find it astonishing that parliamentarians are advocating a return to capital punishment? Well, let's hope that they're in a tiny minority. Um, I think the vast majority fortunately aren't, but it would be it would be terrible. I mean, you know, I, I have a client who probably was one of the, probably the only man alive who is still in this country and who faced a death sentence. He was charged and convicted in Jersey of the murder of his sister, uh, which is pretty horrendous. Um, he's always protested his innocence. Because the parliamentary draftsman, I think, hadn't included Jersey in the legislation which abolished capital punishment, the judge in Jersey, when he was convicted, had no alternative other than to pronounce a sentence of, that he would be hanged. He was on uh, death row, so to speak, for six weeks. I presume, but I don't know, that fairly high-level discussions then took place between the Jersey authorities and the government in Westminster when someone said, we, you can't execute him in Jersey when we've abolished it on the mainland. What are you going to do about it? So one morning, someone just came into his cell and said, you're not now going to be executed you're going to go to the mainland and you're going to go you're going to have a life imprisonment he then did 33 years uh, came out as a, uh, he was a model prisoner and he just lives quietly on the south coast um a fascinating story fascinating case all of the dna evidence by the way that would now exonerate him has su- surprisingly gone missing in between jersey and the mainland when the tests were undertaken so there's not much that can be done about clearing his name, so he will probably die with this conviction hanging over him, sadly. Um, but, you know, the idea that he, you know, was going to hang for that case, for that crime is unbelievable. It's an unbelievable idea that we would be starting to bring that back, particularly when, you know, in fairness, you cannot possibly, with all the evidence that I've been explaining, cannot possibly be certain that the right person has been found guilty. You know, it's just absurd. How hopeful are you that there will be improvements? You've always got to be hopeful. Um, otherwise, it just becomes impossible to, to continue. But, you know, a lot of us um, in this area um, are feeling that, you know, we've got to do more to actually p- persuade the decision makers, um, primarily par- parliamentarians, that they've got to do something. So we, we, we still remain optimistic, but we've got to up the ante somehow and we've got to get get the message across that, that the system could be improved um, and it wouldn't take a lot of effort to do so. Glenn Maddox, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.